Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. And today is not just another fantastic day. Yes, it is, but it is an even more special day because I've Ben Westhoff with me. Uh, I've been waiting for that interview for quite a while. I've read his book, Fentanyl Inc., and I was blown away. Uh, I'm a speed reader. Normally, I sort of flip over a few paragraphs here and there. In this case, I read it cover to cover, word for word, because there's so much information in there, and it blew me away. It changed my understanding of the drug use in the United States and worldwide. And I think that is something we need to highlight. I'm still stuck in the... Uh, early 2000s, where there was a very different drug scene in in my head. And nowadays, life has changed dramatically for so many young people. And it's so high time that we talk about it. So Ben, I'm so grateful that you're on my show. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. And it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's just uh, reading your book, you were a man who uh, was interested in the things that happened around him and you were in the in the wrong place the wrong time or the right place the right time however you look at it because you were really investigating and reporting about the music scene in uh what 2013 around about that time uh 2014 when your journey really started maybe maybe lead us in what made you go down that rabbit hole of researching the novel psychoactive substances and in turn fentanyl and its colleagues. I was a music reporter and I was working at LA Weekly and I was writing about why so many people were dying at raves. You know, now I used to be a raver uh, back in my day, but, um, you know, and people were taking all manner of drugs and I, you know, may have taken some myself, but, but people weren't really dying, you know, but now in this new era that you're talking about the mid odds, um, it seemed like every time there was a big rave, someone would die. And so I wanted to find out because the deaths were always described as coming from ecstasy. And I knew that pure ecstasy, pure MDMA, didn't really kill people very often. Mm -hmm. And so I did a deep dive and found out that there was actually very little MDMA at all in this so-called ecstasy. Instead, MDMA had been replaced by this whole plethora of new synthetic drugs, and they all came from China, mm -hmm. and no one had really heard of almost any of them. And so I investigated what these drugs were, and it turned out that fentanyl was the most the deadliest of all of them. And whereas at first my book was going to be about rave drugs and the history of ecstasy, maybe mm. all of a sudden it became a book about fentanyl. And it's so bizarre because as an anesthetist, fentanyl, that's a drug I give absolutely single every, uh, virtually every patient. And so therefore uh, I live in an environment where these drugs are incredibly regulated. I mean, it is, if there's somewhere an ampule missing, my goodness, the hunt starts until we know what has happened there. So actually to divert fentanyl in the hospital um, in environment is, is quite a challenge. It's doable, but it's a challenge. And your career as a, as a, as a fentanyl injector doesn't last long typically three months, then you have found out because it's so hard to get away with it. Yet here we are, you're talking fentanyl. And I thought, how does that work? But what is happening? Where is this drug coming from? And, and that's the weird thing. When I, until I read your book, I was not aware. So where is all this fentanyl? Where are the dodgy doctors in the United States who are diverting all those drugs? Well, it's actually different different than that. Um, the first people who really got addicted to fentanyl in a big way actually were anesthetists, like you're saying. This was back in the 70s. Um, fentanyl was invented by a Belgian doctor at the end of the 1950s, and it became a very important hospital drug. So that's the only setting that you found it in for decades. Um, it wasn't until the 2000s that it started to be made for recreational use. And this actually wasn't a diversion. This is a fentanyl produced in labs in China. And um, it's the exact same chemical. It's just, it's not produced by these big pharmaceutical companies. 
Instead, as it continues until now, it's made by these kind of rogue labs. And while it is the exact same chemical that you would get in a hospital, the fentanyl you get on the street, the problem is that people like you who are trained to dispense this know what they're doing. And so that's why fentanyl is a very safe hospital drug. But these dealers on the streets, you know, I talked to a guy who literally mixed it up with um, Mr. Coffee, uh, uh, coffee bean grinder. And so when they're mixing fentanyl with heroin, that's what they're doing. And as you know, that's a recipe for lots of hot spots. You know, there's no way to do that properly. And so that's why one dose of heroin laced with fentanyl you know, would, would be just fine. But then the same dose, uh, the same mixture, the next dose could kill you. And that's the whole problem with fentanyl. Exactly. And that's, that's the, the crazy thing. When you're actually talking about mixing highly hard and potent drugs, like the way you described it with coffee grinder, for crying out loud, when we're in a hospital, we give micrograms worth of fentanyl. So we are very meticulous and we very much know that there's a great in the individual um, sensitivity. So some, some people are really sensitive to it. You show them the bloody ampule and they are half zonked and other are so you know they can take a bit more but we are talking tiniest amounts and if you get those tiniest amounts wrong then you have got a dead person or in my case a virtually anesthetized person on the hands and that's the, the, the crazy thing isn't it yeah and now it's not just heroin you know i mean not very many people in the u.s really use heroin when you think about it but there's a much bigger market for prescription pills and now fentanyl is being made into these fake pills that look exactly like a Percocet or a Xanax. And so again, you have people who order these pill pressing machines off the internet and then they're doing it in their own apartment, mixing it up with uh, Benadryl or something like that. And again, you'll have a case where one pill you'll take it and nothing will happen, but then the next one will have hot spots of fentanyl and, and kill you. That's just nuts. Absolute nuts. And it's intriguing when I read your book and you actually you actually followed the, the, the money, so to speak. You also followed the drugs and you actually went to China to look where this fentanyl is coming from. And that, that actually blew me away, the, that what we're talking. Because what you described to me there, I don't know, I, I imagine a guy sort of doing, you know, having a little bit of powder there, a little bit of powder there, a little handy machine like that. We're really not talking that kind of, of, of I don't know, half a table full of equipment here, isn't it? We're talking actually industrial amounts of chemicals being produced by people over there. Yeah, I mean, I kept hearing that fentanyl was made in China along with a bunch of other new synthetic drugs and um, but no journalist had ever been over there and there was very little information. And so I, you know, I just started by Googling buy fentanyl in China and um, <laughs> the names of all these companies came up and uh, I made a, a fake a fake identity and just started contacting them. They were very, it was very brazen how these companies, you know, have their email and phone numbers. And so I just contacted them and I started learning about the businesses. And I said, finally, well, if I came over to China, could you show me? And I was interested in making a purchase. Could you show me the lab? And some of the places said, yes. So I infiltrated two different drug operations. One was in Shanghai where I saw, I went to actually the Breaking Bad style lab where they were making fentanyl analogs and also synthetic cannabinoids, which are sometimes known as uh, synthetic marijuana. And um, yeah, like you were saying, I was just shocked by, you know, this is a fairly small lab, but they were making these huge quantities of uh, fentanyl analogs. And for those who don't know, a fentanyl analog is basically affects you the same as fentanyl or it can be even stronger but the molecule is tweaked just slightly so that it's technically legal mm -hmm. and so you know we saw i saw these huge like five gallon drums of fentanyl analogs being mixed and made and 
when you think about, like you said, it's just two grains of rice worth needed to get someone high or even overdose, um, just how much was being produced. And, um, and then after that, I went to Wuhan and this was before coronavirus. And so most people are not familiar with Wuhan. Um, and I, but, but they have the biggest sort of chemical industry in China and China in turn has the biggest uh, pharmaceutical and chemical industries in the world. And so the vast majority of it is, um, by the book is legal. Um, but some of these companies exist in this sort of gray market where they're making chemicals that are, like I said, legal in China, but illegal in the U.S. and the West, and that's where their customers are. And I um, went to a place called Yuan Chung. It's this company in Wuhan, and they it's a huge company. I saw like hundreds of young salespeople, and they were selling fentanyl raw ingredients. So they're known as fentanyl precursors. And I couldn't believe it. All these, you know, these 20 something uh, sales workers just sitting at laptop computers. Um, they were on Skype and social media and they were just selling this like it was any other product. And uh, they gave me a whole tour of the company and I was just shocked by what I saw. This is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. When you arrived there, what year was that? 2014, 2015? 2018, yeah. 2018 even that you went there. Yeah. So we know that China has been completely redoing their society, for the lack of a better word. Um, you really want to be a good citizen. And they have got now cameras everywhere. They have got, basically, everyone is being assessed. So these... Everyone is on the radar of the Chinese government to a certain degree. So, so also are all these drug companies, these chemical companies, should I say. And so these companies are not hidden away. They are actually practicing very open with full acceptance of the Chinese government, isn't it? Yeah. And in fact, from my reporting, I learned that a lot of these companies, uh, like the ones I visited, are subsidized they receive tax rebates for fentanyl exports, if you can believe that. And so, um, you know, they also are part of these business parks that are built for, for companies like this. They've, they've received awards for chemical innovation. And so it, it's, you know, some things have changed since I visited, like under pressure from the United States, China banned all fentanyl analogs in 2019. And so, you know, what's odd about these drug companies, you know, you think about um, drug syndicates in Mexico and Colombia and chopping off people's heads and, mm. and all the, everything like that. But these Chinese drug companies, they just want to operate within the law. And so once the law has changed, they really did stop selling these fentanyl analogs. Unfortunately, as you know, that hasn't stopped the spread of fentanyl in the U.S. at all. In fact, things have gotten worse. And that's because these companies are now just focusing on the precursors, like I said, the raw ingredients. And those do remain legal in China. And those are sent by the literal boatload to Mexico, to the cartels. And there the, the cartels use these, use these raw ingredients to make finished fentanyl. It's a very simple process. And then they're sent north of the border and distributed, you know, like other drugs in the United States. So prior to 2019, there was very much a support by the Chinese government towards these drug companies, when it is actually very clear where this fentanyl is going. I mean, it doesn't take a brain surgeon um, to figure that out. Is that not a way of asymmetrical warfare? Is that not essentially the government actually saying, yeah, cool, <laughs> let's get rid of a few Americans? What do you think? Is that, is uh, that too you know, cynical? A lot of people, well, a lot of people have sort of um, theorized that, and some people even call it a reverse opium war because the initial, the original opium wars were basically China flooding, uh, excuse me, England flooding China with opium um, during the 19th century and China like fought two wars 
to, to get the opium out of their country. So now it's kind of the reverse. It's China providing this opioid to Western countries. Um, and there have been some sort of conspiratorial seeming documents that indicate maybe China has tried to find, um, you know, uh, non-traditional types of warfare to ways to, to battle the United States. I tend not to think that it's sort of like a top-down conspiracy sort of thing. I mean, I, I think about China, it's, it's not just one thing, you know, there are like the heads of state in China mm. and like national leaders. And I think most of them, you know, generally don't want China to have this image as the mm. world's drug pusher, right? Mm. But there are a lot of provincial leaders and these leaders might have these companies working in their province and they, you know, see the money being made, the tax revenue generated, the, the employment generated. Okay. And it's very easy for them to sort of look the other way. Hmm. And, um, you know, China has drug problems of its own. There's a, a bad problem with meth usage there, with heroin usage. And the police really work to stamp that out. But there isn't a fentanyl problem in China. And so I think it, it has been very easy in the past to, to say, like, you know, this isn't affecting our country. So it's not something that we're really going to worry about. And to counter my own argument, you make uh, you have got a little vignette in your book where uh, China had a bit of egg on their face when they realized that actually drugs were shipped through one of their ports. These armed personnel carriers were found. They thought, what the fuck? <laughs> so there was a bit of egg on their face. And if, if they got surprised by eight or 12 of armed personnel carriers uh, to be found going through their port, how do you think it is with regards to, you know, a few hundred kilogram of fentanyl? They would be so much easier to actually slip through the lines, et cetera. So uh, it is, uh, I can see that these conspiracy theories are maybe a little bit too simplified. Yeah. So, you know, I think China says that they have really tried to do what the U.S. has wanted them to do. Um, now, in the case of this Wuhan kingpin who I met and who I went to their company, to, to his company called Yuan Chung, um, the U.S. just recently unsealed an indictment of him. And there's also a $5 million reward offered for, uh, you know, information leading to his capture. So this was very shocking to me because I under, you know, I spent years investigating this guy and um, which I write about in the book. And um, but from my understanding, the fact that they announced this indictment means they've sort of given up trying mm. to to get him, you know, because now he knows there's a price on his head. And the only way he would really be caught was if he left the country mm. and he could be arrested getting off the plane in the United States or one of our allies. Mm. And so now he knows this. And so he probably won't leave the country at all. Mm. But, um, you know, China has not been helpful to the U.S. in trying to prosecute him at all. And um, <laughs> that's the know, understatement. <laughs> they refuse yeah. to to get him out, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. And China actually says, you know, we don't appreciate the United States efforts. They're making things exactly. harder for us. And so exactly. it's very much a situation where they don't want us to tell them what to do. <laughs> oh, bloody hell. But I think it's so important. So it's whilst I have got a bit of a chemical understanding. And so do you after all your research, uh, just for the for the viewer who who maybe fell asleep in the chemical classes um, in chemistry, you you have got molecules. Molecules are basically like Lego. You, you take Lego, which are sort of atoms and you put them together in a fancy way and it looks nice. And that's now your molecule. Now, make a Lego shape and call it fentanyl. And then suddenly someone says, oh, no, you can't make that. Okay, so what do you do? You just take another Lego piece and put it somewhere on the side. Now it's no longer fentanyl. It is something, car fentanyl or whatever uh, chemical name you want to give it. But now that is suddenly legal again. 
So if you do that with fentanyl, oh, that's that's okay, easy. And and you just said that it finally under pressure, China made fentanyl and analog. So anything that looks and behaves like fentanyl, regardless how many Lego you change, um, illegal. The problem is we are talking about one molecule. That's fentanyl. There are so many others out there. And there are so many others. And then that what I didn't realize is that there has been this, this subculture of psychonauts. Now, that blew me away. I didn't know that. <laughs> Tell me, what is a psychonaut? A psychonaut is someone who tries experimental drugs that have like never really been tried before you know, experimental recreational drugs. And so to boldly go where no man has gone before, (laughs) literally. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of these guys are really into obscure psychedelics and they want to be the first person they go on Reddit or they go on other forums and they describe their experiences trying these new psychedelics or new other drugs and and hopefully don't die. Um, You know, these, these, uh, these chemicals tend to come from, old research papers, you know, um, scientists who tried to invent new drugs for the sake of marketing them and patenting them and getting rich. And oftentimes these drugs never came to market, but uh, their research, you know, it used to just sit on dusty shelves in universities and libraries, but now everything's on the internet. And so these psychonauts and these people who, who manufacture these illicit new drugs um, go through the research. And once they find a chemist that they really like, I wrote about this uh, chemist named David Nichols at Purdue. He was a, he's a very like by the book sort of academic type who was doing all these studies into the potential health benefits and psychological benefits from, from different psychedelics. Um, but once all these rogue chemists discovered his work, they just went through paper by paper by paper and started remaking all the, 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 the psychedelics that he made. And so the problem is, you know, you're trying something with no, there's never been any testing done on it. You know, this is, you're just a human guinea pig. And, uh, there's people who really enjoy this, believe it or not. But if you now imagine chemistry, you can, I mean, it must be infinite uh, amounts of, of combinations of atoms that you can put together. And whilst there are some that are a bit more likely to be psychoactive, it must be a huge amount. I mean, it is, I mean, what is your gut feeling? How many potential candidates for psychoactive substances would you think there are? Hundred thousand, a million, ten million. Potential, yeah, if not more. I yeah. mean, um, you know, all throughout human people have been using drugs since the dawn of time, right? But throughout exactly. human history, everything came from plants or animals. You know, mm-hmm. mostly plants, but there's like certain toads you can lick the back of, and or, or something like that. But you know, it's only a <laughs> only a couple of different handfuls. Uh. You know, cactuses and mushrooms and, and the marijuana plant. And there's there's not very many. But in recent years, um, since the dawn of synthetic drugs, um, it's got to be that they were inventing, you know, a dozen new drugs every year. And then it got to be hundreds. And so now we're at the point where it's literally hundreds of new drugs are invented and, you know, posted for sale on the Internet every year. Um, particularly popular are, like I mentioned before, these synthetic cannabinoids. And um, people say it's synthetic marijuana, but really it's not like marijuana at all. You know, smoking some weed chills people out and makes them, you know, maybe get the munchies and Mm. take a nap. But um, these synthetic cannabinoids are um, completely uh, made in a lab. There's no natural product to it at all. And it's like a, it's called a full agonist. So it impacts the same receptors as uh, THC as marijuana, but it's like supercharged. And so people, you can, you know, see all these YouTube videos. Um, the common names are like spice mm. and K2 and people like losing their minds over these, uh, these cannabinoids. 
And, and do you, from now and then, see a new drug coming on the market and suddenly you've got police coming out in force because there are zombies, literally zombies, walking around. And there have been quite a few cases in the United States, but also around Europe, where uh, drugs like that, and sorry, also in here, new, in little New Zealand, uh, we are just as, as, um, as in trouble as everywhere else. Because these are new things. These are uncharted territories. Uh, we don't know. Someone is coming out with something cool and or not so cool or just give it a shot, whatever. And it, and they sell it. And sometimes it can be just something really uh, not very, very spectacular in the sense of from a health risk point of view. And that's nice, but that's typically not the case. On the contrary, suddenly the emergency department gets flooded with people who are behaving extremely uh, bizarre and putting themselves at risk, putting staff at risk, putting innocent bystanders at risk. I mean, that is a huge, huge, huge thing for us doctors. And it scares the living daylights out of you when you see someone like that, because there's no rationing. There is no, no sensible talk. There's no calming them down, no de-escalation. De Everything that we normally try uh, goes out of the window. Um, so these are not nice things. Yeah, and I wrote about um, this New Zealand, this very particular New Zealand case with a chemist mm. named Matt Bowden. Mm. And um, he ushered in um, these new cannabinoids and he was worried because they were killing so many people in New Zealand. And um, that's because they, they weren't making them right, you know, and they were selling them super high potent doses. doses. Mm -hmm. And so he became and started making these safer drugs, these safer party drugs. And he actually got the New Zealand legislature to agree to change the law to allow these new uh, safer um, synthetic drugs. And it was like a one of a kind experiment that's never happened before and will probably may never happen again. But for a while, all of these cannabinoids, these other type of fake ecstasy pills were all legal and you could buy them um, in, in stores. And, um, you know, Bowden said that it actually reduced deaths because they were doing at safe dosages. And, um, you know, he said it was clearly from a public health standpoint, a positive thing, but there was all this sort of scaremongering and fear mongering. And so just as quickly as the legislature allowed them, they they banned them again. And that's just just how fickle um, the support from governments is and how how knee-jerk reactions often occur or. Um, that governments try something um, that at first glance actually makes sense, yet then backfires and no one goes back on it. The example there would be, for example, I was blown away to read when you described that drug testing on uh, raves became illegal. Or let's rephrase that. It, the drug testing didn't become illegal, but the organizers of the raves uh, refused to have drug testing on site, because that would mean that they admit that rave parties maybe favor drug use, and that would make them liable and them responsible. Tell us a bit about that, because that, that blew my mind when I read that. Yeah, that was a law that's known as the Rave Act that was actually uh, brought to be passed by uh, Joe Biden, you know, long before he was president. And um, the problem is that, um, like you said, there's all everyone knows that when you go to raves, mm. there's lots of people using drugs, right? But this law forces the organizers to pretend mm. they don't know what's happening. And so one of the best ways to stop drug overdoses and to stop fentanyl overdoses is by checking your drugs. You know, mm. they have fentanyl testing strips that are extremely cheap and uh let you know immediately if you've got fentanyl in your drugs or not. And there's a lot of organizations that set up, like when I went to Spain, you know, a lot of places in Europe, you see these uh, organizations at raves and other parties and you bring your ecstasy pill to them and they'll check it and tell you if it's safe or not, you know, or your cocaine or any drug. And, um, but you know, the U S does so many things in such a dumb way that, um, 
they've tried to actually persecute these groups here. Don't sugarcoat it. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I agree. I 100% agree with you because that's so nuts. And we know that there was uh, an older study, as you say, early 2000s, where researchers in the UK went on a Saturday night to, to rave parties and actually bought ecstasy tablets. And I think they bought 24 and then analyzed them in the lab that was actually in there. I think there were two or four of them had some ecstasy in them, but uh, all the rest was completely cut. Some of them had ketamine in them, which is basically a, a, a very powerful anesthetic agents that we use in a positive sense in the in the in the uh, in the theater. But uh, bloody hell, this is these are drugs that are incredibly powerful. Some uh, very nasty cutting agents were in found in there. It was basically you might as well drink weed killer compared with with taking those drugs and that was early 2000s and as you say the things have changed and are constantly evolving and that's where we come back to those no so you first yeah i was gonna say the good news is that you can buy these drug checking kits for yourself relatively cheaply off the internet and i always recommend a company called bunk police b-u-n-k bunk police and um you know you can do it at home so you just Mm. have to have a little patience, but you know, like, like I tell young people, any Mm. pill, any powder that you buy off the black market could have fentanyl in it. Mm. And so just taking the time to check your drugs really could save your life. hundred percent. Absolutely. And it is, we need to, oh, there's so much to say for crying out loud. Um, let's go back to 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 the cannabinoids and to the various analogs of psychoactive substances. Um, it We are talking about um, the governments making decisions like banning certain substances and altering legislation. That all takes time. That all is actually quite an involved uh, thing. So by the time somewhere there is a reaction by the government, we're talking probably two, three, four, five years down the line. Meanwhile, someone has flooded the market with a new product uh, that is completely taking the local world by storm. Um, And doctors, legislators, uh, frontline police are completely caught out. Uh, You were were talking about ice cream in Slovenia. Um, (laughs) That, for example, let's tell that story. And I like ice cream. I like vanilla ice cream. Absolutely. But we are talking about something very different here. Tell us that. Yeah. Well, I went to Slovenia, uh, the, the city of Ljubljana, because they have this amazingly progressive sort of approach to drug treatment and uh, drug policing. Um, But when I got there, everyone was talking about this drug called ice cream and uh, I never heard of it. And everyone's ice cream, this ice cream, that. And so it turned out it's a type of a synthetic cathinone, which is a a stimulant um, derived from the, the cat plant, which is, used as um, in the Middle East, it's a, a natural plant that's a stimulant, but they're making a synthetic version of it. And so it's kind of like um, between ecstasy and speed, maybe it gets people like really excited. And sometimes people put it as fake ecstasy. Um, but I was like, well, why do they call it ice cream? And I actually got to meet the, the guy who invented ice cream, this drug dealer. <laughs> and what he said was that, um, he was cutting the, the drug, you know, to increase his profits. Um, and his girlfriend, uh, suggested using a vanilla, like a protein powder, like a vanilla flavored protein powder. And, uh, he put it in there and it turns out that the customers liked the vanilla taste so much that later he tried taking it out and they wouldn't buy it anymore. They said, no, we, we, we like, you know, you got to leave that in. And so it acquired the name ice cream and became a sensation all throughout the region. And I love the argument from the, the girlfriend. You know, these, these drug, drug addicts, they don't get enough food. So we give them some protein yeah. powder. <laughs> oh, look, three calories. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, she effectively snort that substance and that therefore the vanilla taste molecules go down to the tongue and you taste it. <laughs> I don't know how that protein is supposed to get into the body, uh, but it's yeah, just. I, I, I don't know. I don't know about that logic exactly, but yeah. you know. 
<laughs> it just shows. It just shows. So suddenly you've got a a drug that is psychoactive and that makes you feel good, makes you feel high. Now you do a bit of marketing spin and something crazy happens. Everyone wants that drug. Everyone wants to be out there. You can imagine that no one had heard about that. You hadn't heard about that. The police had no clue what was going on. So now if you actually, if you believe that there is a path of legislation that can actually deal with truck use and can prevent truck use and can, can somehow solve the problem, you already get the idea about those examples that I wanted to bring up here, that this is actually a fallacy. So you can't really wait for governments to somehow legislate a market which is constantly evolving. We are no longer talking about big shipments of cannabis and maybe big shipments of cocaine, something that potentially a border agent can actually find. You're talking about chemicals that come in as part of normal industrial processes. And someone says, oh, let's snort that or let's drink that or let's whatever. Yeah, and you know the dark web has really changed the game because now you don't have to buy drugs from your local drug dealer or use the Mexican cartels. Um, you know, like young kids know how to access the dark web and um, have drugs sent right to their door. And um, you know, some people think that some parts of the dark web actually promote harm reduction because there are sites that use Amazon-style ratings, and so. If someone is selling something that's cut with fentanyl or it's deadly, then they'll get a bad review. Um, whereas the, the more trusted vendors can, you know, you can buy from more safely. Um, you know, so you know, I, I'm not sure if if this ultimately makes sense, but there then there are other dark websites that won't sell any fentanyl products at all. Mm. But um, but going back to your point about trying to legislate this. I mean, the problem is that it's just, um, you know, it's a game of whack-a-mole, like we were saying. And so, again, we talked about China banning the fentanyl analogs, you know. And so so now what's become popular is um, non-fentanyl opioids, right? So, so all of a sudden we have this drug called ISO in the U.S. No one had ever heard of it. But it's an, it's an opioid, you know. And so it's like, why is this popular all of a sudden? Well, it's popular because fentanyl is banned. And um, and what's really starting to take off in the United States now are, are different types of uh, benzodiazepines, you know, and, and those are, you know, like uh, Xanax and uh, Valium are the most famous. And so those are more and more regulated. But in its place now, all these Chinese labs are making these new, you know, spins on Xanax or where a few molecules are tweaked. But but what's happened is these these new benzos can be twice as strong as Xanax. And um, so you have all these cases where these, again, a lot of young people are taking these pills and then blacking out like they're still they're still awake. They're still walking around, but all their memories are erased. And so this guy, you know, we interviewed this guy who um, like woke up, his car was crashed into someone's house. He had stolen like $300 worth of scuba diving gear or something. He had stolen some bizarre items from someone's house and uh, he woke up in jail and um, didn't have any memory of what happened the night before. And if you look at the incidence of sexual abuse and of rape in the United States, it is an, a figure that makes me every time shudder. Uh, with with disgust actually and now I mean how hard have doctors and and rape prevention specialists police tried to to ban and try to raise awareness of of GHB of uh, their benzodiazepines flunitrosepam arohypnol was being made more or less illegal um, because it was tasteless uh, colorless it was the perfect date rape drug and now finally we sort of got those things under control and suddenly you got, you get the markets market gets flooded with these new things that may or may not turn up on a truck screen that may or may not you know about and which might not even be much easier to to 
smuggle someone into a drink. So it's it's again we are back to to the seventies where where a nation gets again taken out by benzodiazepines and it's just nuts 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 nuts. Yeah, that that is a problem, and I have heard about the, these novel benzodiazepines, as they're called, uh, being used for this purpose of facil- facilitating sexual assault. Mm. And I'm not surprised, and but it is, it is a. A New Zealand um, DJ um, once said, you know, when I was young, we were smoking killer weed. Nowadays, the kids are smoking weed killer. And uh-huh. I think that is, <laughs> that is unfortunately a very true thing. And the sad thing is, we, you know, as a youngster nowadays, you have no idea what you're getting. And that is the, the key message that we need to drive home to anyone, to any young person out there. Of course, you want to change yeah, your feelings. It's, it's, sadly, you know, it's a bad time to be yeah. a young person. I hate to say, you know, Absolutely. when I was, uh, you Absolutely. know, when I was that age, uh, you could sort of just take a pill at a party or snort a line and mm. you probably were going to be OK. But it's just those days are long gone. Exactly. No, absolutely true. And it's crazy. I mean, and and sadly, we are there already and it's getting worse and worse. We have got now the first year ever in the United States, more than 100,000 uh, overdose deaths. And that, that figure has dramatically gone up over the years from what, 50 to 70,000 and now 100,000 in the last three years alone. That's nuts. Um, and it will not get better. Because ultimately, um, people have now found out that with new substances, um, they can make gazillions and they get away with it because no one can test them. Um, and if they, if they, someone gets onto their, their trail, onto their, their uh, back, they just switch over and, and use something new. So it's actually very, very easy uh, nowadays for, for drug dealers to, to make a lot of money. Uh, in a relatively safe way, isn't it? Yeah, the it's driven, you know, in the U.S. by the Mexican cartels. Mm. And uh, the cartels were, you know, have long been in the business of heroin, mm. marijuana, meth, and mm. cocaine. The The cocaine is uh, the the leaves are, are grown in Colombia, but they're processed and distributed by the Mexican cartels in the United States. And so, mm. you know, marijuana is becoming legal in so many States in the U S and so that's the cartels are sort of gradually moving out of that business. Mm. And they're trying to move out of the heroin business too, because it's, it, it has to be grown, you know, it's a long um, expensive process to grow opium poppies mm. and it's very susceptible to law enforcement who can, you know, just see these, these fields being mm. grown. Um, the advantage of fentanyl and of meth, you know, these are synthetic drugs that can be made in a lab. And so the, you know, you hear these stories about these uh, Mexican opium poppy farmers who are just going out of business because the, cartels are are switching over to fentanyl so fast. And um, like you said, I do think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And the problem is that the, the, the pills, you know, fentanyl being adulterated into pills that look exactly like prescription pills. And so, you know, when, when hair, when fentanyl is cut into heroin, that's a bad problem. But like, like I said, not that many people really use heroin. Mm. There's a much bigger market for these prescription pills mm. and that's only starting to be tapped. And um, it's really only the tip of the iceberg because mm. people think that, you know, it's a pill, a doctor prescribed it, it must be safe. Um, and so- <laughs> No, 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 no. Uh, I don't know. Really, what, you know, young kids think that. Yeah. I don't know what nowadays the statistics are. One of the, the recent statistics I've got in mind uh, is that 40% of all drugs that are pressed in tablet form are fake around the world. 40%. Um, and oh, really? that, is, that is worldwide. That was one figure that was mentioned to me. Um, if I'm wrong, please, if someone can correct me, please send some, some info in, guys. Um, but but uh, it's it important is. to distinguish, I think, that like if you get it from your pharmacist or your doctor, those Absolutely. are safe. But you're talking about black market absolutely you know, exactly yeah. and they're yeah. just coming in there that's you know if you buy over the um if you buy 
uh, Viagra somewhere on the internet. God knows what you get. <laughs> that is what I'm talking about, uh, uh, those kind of <laughs> things. But it is so easy. It just shows how easy it is to make a tablet. Uh, it's just basically, uh, yeah. you know, once you've figured out how the press works, well, you can squirt anything in there, do anything with it. But it's crazy. If you if you think back about the, the historical development, sort of the, the waves of drug abuse that, that you guys in the United States and then in, in turn Europe and other parts uh, had, we had the, the crack cocaine in the 70s. We had then, what was next? Uh, heroin. Um, then we had the Oxycontin and the, the, uh, those things in the, in the north. Um, then we have got now fentanyl. Ultimately, what I deduce from that is everyone wants to escape their reality. And if there is a new way out there, they will take it. Doesn't matter if you have got to snort it or inject it or drink it or whatever. Um, as long as they can escape, or as people can escape their trauma, escape their their pain, escape their their life that they don't like, they will take it. So therefore, legislation, I've already more or less given up on. I mean, let's talk about other ways that in historically people were dealing with, with drugs. So if we know everyone wants to take drugs, okay, governments had different approaches. And it's interesting because you go into that in one of your chapters, which I found quite amazing and quite intriguing because I had not seen it so nicely actually summarized. So give me the history of, of how your governments initially sort of tried, okay, we've got a problem with drugs. Let's deal with that. Well, in the United States, the war on drugs began with Richard Nixon and, um, you know, was famously the, the just say no era began with Reagan. Um, you know, there have been other countries like South Korea, Singapore that have taken, you know, and a lot of Asian countries have taken a very draconian approach to um you know, sometimes like in China, there's a huge number of uh, drug dealers are put to death. And um, but then you have other European countries that have taken the complete opposite approach, like Spain and Portugal um, decriminalized all drugs pretty much. And even in the United States, like Oregon passed that law and the decriminalization of marijuana has even come to places like where I live in uh, St. Louis, Missouri and uh, the middle of the country. So, you know, what, what I, my, my belief tends to be that, um, you know, throwing drug users in jail usually does more harm than good because, exactly. you know, people, especially opioid users, you know, they, they need treatment. And um, when they get out, they're still going to have Absolutely. the same addiction. It's just going to be uh, much worse. And so, um, I think, you know, luckily, I think that's something we're starting to see now is more money devoted towards opioid treatment programs mm. and um, and even alcoholism and other types of drug treatment programs. And that's exactly what it is. Addiction is essentially a medical disease, just as much as diabetes or asthma. It's a chronic disease that needs to be managed. And if you can help people to detox in the first instance, and then show them new ways, new habits, new focus in life, etc., to, to develop a new person that is less and less likely to need a drug or alcohol to escape their reality. That is really modern addiction treatment. That is really, and, and if it is the 12 steps or if there's other versions uh, that guide you down that path, it's ultimately, that is really, it is a disease management. And therefore it is so yeah. so bizarre to actually think back in the seventies, Richard Nixon there. Um, and it's intriguing there with, with this kind of more draconian approach that was, that was really actually targeted at the blacks, uh, at, at, at lower socioeconomic classes there. There was a quantity of racism thrown in there, was there not, originally with the war on drugs, quotation mark. Yeah, one of Nixon's advisors said that Nixon was targeting the, the blacks and the hippies. Mm you know, who um, he saw as being his big opponents in his re-election exactly. campaign and, exactly. and things like that. And, um, you know, I I think, you know, just to end on, you know, something more positive is that we're lucky that we do have these opioid treatment drugs, mm. you know, 
um, when it comes to drugs like like meth and cocaine, we're kind of still out in the wilderness. But mm. for um, you know, we have methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. And yeah. the last one is one that I don't think gets talked about enough, um, especially for people like we've said who, when they've been detoxed. Um, are able to take naltrexone and the, the brand name is Vivitrol. It's a shot that blocks all opioids for 25 days. So even if you would, were to take some heroin or some, some mm. fentanyl, it wouldn't affect you at all mm. because um, it's what you call an antagonist. So it blocks the, the opioid receptors basically. And, um, you know, uh, we had COVID and when COVID descended, it was like all hands on deck and we spent, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to try to, to stop this problem. Mm. Um, but we don't have the same urgency with, uh, the drug, with drug deaths, you know, even though more people have died ultimately from drug deaths and, and that problem is getting worse, mm. even while COVID, you know, the it's, we're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. And so, I just believe that we need to treat this problem as seriously as we have COVID. 100%. 100%. It puts the, the support uh, things in place because addiction is fueled by the socioeconomic problems. It is, it is uh, fueled by a constant barrage of shit hitting people in their daily life. And that's the reason they want to escape their reality. If you actually support them and actually if you create a community, if you create um, connection amongst people, that is really how you you work on dealing with addiction as, a, as the, the core principles. Of course, connection is a challenge when it comes to COVID, to isolation. And they, we will probably see a significant worsening. I mean, there is certainly uh, there's some evidence in some of your counties and states coming out that indeed the isolation and uh, the, the problems that arose from COVID have significantly impact the statistics of uh, um, social problems as domestic violence, family harm, um, addiction, um, overdoses, alcoholism, all those kind of things. So this, these are nasty times. There's no two ways around that. And we need to accept that. And, and I think the, the people on the, on the call front need to accept that uh, it, these problems are there. We can't just talk them away. And I want to make a big, big say out there. Addiction affects every single bloody strata of society. Okay, this is not, these are not down and out people in the gutter, look at them. No, I was an addict. I'm an alcoholic. I'm, I was reasonably high functioning. I kept my job somehow. And, you know, it is, that's the face of depression, PTSD, alcoholism. That's the face that is, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. And so are many of the people I meet. Chemical addiction is actually quite common. Some people say as high as one in three, a more conservative figure, one in four, one in five, one in 10. That's still, if you're in a room full of people, there are a lot of addicts in there, like it or lump it. And it doesn't matter in which, in which, uh, in which level of society you are. And in some of them, it's even more, more common. And I mean, to take, take uh, people like Gordon Ramsay. Um, he is a celebrity chef and, and he, is, he is, you know, the, 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 uh, the culinary uh, institutes, the, uh, the culinary uh, workplace has always been high powered, uh, hard work, but also hard playing. And he went around in his restaurants and with a with a truck swap and found cocaine in the toilet in his own in his own staff toilets. So he was not impressed. But no surprise there. It is it is something that is constantly there. So therefore, we we let's accept it for what it is and let's put the treatments in. Let's actually go out there and people like you. You are you have been fundamental in changing my insight into the problems that we are facing. I was still caught in somehow the oxycodone kind of era. I mean, there's, you guys have got a, a television series, The Glades, which is uh, based uh, in, in um, the um, 
uh, in the South. Exactly, Everglades. And it was an interesting episode because it was the first one, 2007, 2008, and run a few seasons. There is not a single episode in those seasons where someone doesn't take oxycodone. And, you know, do you want to have some sex? And here's an oxycodone, 20 milligram. And you just think, what? 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 What, what do we watch there now? And that was that was quite an amazing thing. But that also showed, of course, the the Florida as being the main consumer of of dodgy oxycodone in those times. But I was still caught up in that. I was still thinking, oh my God, oxycodone, my uh, hillbilly heroin kind of stuff down there. I'm ten years behind the game, and that's why I'm so grateful that I read your book. Yeah, people are, you know, and right now. There's a lot of um, exposés about Purdue Pharma, mm. you know, and they made uh, OxyContin and really uh, marketed it in a very cynical and, you know, criminal way. And yeah. um, and they definitely, that was the first wave of the opioid crisis. Um, and then the second wave was heroin and now it's fentanyl. Mm. But, but, you know, the, the prescription opioids are not really the problem anymore. You know what I mean? And there are plenty of people who need these pills for legitimate medical reasons. And um, the problem, it's its moved really far beyond that. And so, you know, I kind of wish that people would take their energy and stop spending so much time about these, these real pills and focus more on these fake pills with fentanyl because that's, that's the real problem now. If I was to promote you to the chief of the CDC and actually give the CDC some power in the United States. What would you change? Well, I might start with just education programs, you know, starting for very young kids, you know, starting maybe as young as junior high to, um, you know, I think the problem with programs like D.A.R.E., you know, the, the, the drug education program that I got when I was a kid was yeah. there's a lot of scare tactics and they yeah. said, you know, use any drug, you're, you know, smoke a little weed and you're going to end up, you yeah. know, in the yeah. hospital. And yeah. um, I think kids, kids are smart, you know, and if we give them the real information, tell them what's really happening um, with these with these new drugs, then I think they'll believe it and they'll respond to it. Um, I would also just, you know, increase these uh, these testing supplies, mm. um, you know, access to treatment drugs. That's the problem is that, you know. So few people who are addicted to opioids um, access treatment drugs. And partly the problem is that they don't, they're, you know, not, no one approaches them in their community. Like we said, you know, there's all, you know, it's really affected the African-American population. And there's very few of treatment centers like getting out there and uh, the funding is starting to come in. You know, people can take naltrexone and, and some of these other treatment drugs for very low cost, but, but it's just not reaching the people it needs to. And so that's what I would focus on. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. This, we need a different approach to, to drug abuse um, that is going away from the traditional kind of either law enforcement driven way or from the classic sort of the, the addiction uh, treatment way that is still maybe stuck a little bit behind of what really is occurring now. But most importantly, we need someone on the helm, i.e. at a funding helm, to have the balls to say, no, we need to do something here, because otherwise things will not change. But right now, my country, New Zealand here, we are, I mean, for crying out loud, um, the, the mixture of COVID and other challenges has put a huge pressure on, on government uh, to do things. The addiction treatment uh, and uh, the availability of counselors and psychologists is horrendous. It is their waiting list for Africa. There is, It is just uh. nuts, nuts, nuts. It is. Um, it is my son um, is is wanting to uh, to access some psychology services, and four months down the line, still nothing. Uh, it's it's mm, impo- uh, you know these kind of things. So that's the reality here. I have been 
I've been so blessed because when I was in trouble 2013, 2014, there was still a Capri Rehabilitation Hospital running here, which was a private institution. And they these buggers saved my life. I really loved them to bits for what they did, but ultimately it was financially no longer viable for them. And so we've got all these kind of issues there. So whilst when I did a Google search, there are 245 mentionings of drug rehabilitation here. Yeah, about that, about that. Um, there, you know, you've got people who are dabbling a bit here and there, and some of them might be actually very good, but there is not a structured approach that supports the the, the coming out. The, the government does some kind of little bits and bobs, uh, bobs there. We've got campaigns such as it's okay not to be okay when sports stars open up about being depressed, etc. So there are some little bits there. We have got comedians uh, who are going out and, and opening up about their own journey with depression and often with alcohol and other drug use. But these are few and far between. There's no systematic approach. And I applaud you for saying that, for taking that stance. Um, what do you think about, uh, about Portugal and, and Spain? They have taken this approach. Um, you probably know more about the more recent developments there is that still actually the success story as we believed it was in two three years ago or have they gone back on their on their thinking well i don't know the most current statistics and, and you know it's not that everything there is uh sunshine and roses you know spain <laughs> in particular has its own sort of drug trafficking problems but they do you know tend to people use the traditional drugs you know marijuana, you know, even heroin, um, you know, psychedelics, magic mushrooms, things like that. And they, the natural drugs tend to be safer. Mm. So, um, so that's, you know, that's better than the, the alternative. And, um, Mm. so, but no, like you mentioned, um, the, it's not just receiving treatment drugs, it's also receiving the counseling. And, uh, you know, as you know, these things go hand in hand and that's, that's really a critical part of it. Mm. Wow. I mean, you you spend so much time going in that. I mean, I want to say a, a, a heart felt, deep heart felt, whatever the English word is, uh, for <laughs> thank you. Um, for What's the German word? <laughs> <laughs> now you put me on the spot. At the moment, my, my brain goes 100 miles an hour and tries to, to talk to you about things. So it is, it's probably more my mouth lagging behind my brain than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to say thank you for the hard work you did. I mean, you you spent the better part of four years investigating that. I mean, it is, uh, I hope you make some money out of your book that somehow recompensates or compensates you for, reimburses you for all the, the money you have spent investigating that. Um, it is, that was work that really needed doing. And I'm so, so pleased that I got the chance to talk to you. Um, well, I'm, your story, I'm so, it makes me so happy to hear your story. And, um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's been great talking to you. And it's, it's been great meeting with people. You know, there's so many great stories of hope out there. And um, even at the bleakest, you know, time of this crisis, I'd still, I, I still believe that we, we are smart enough as a society to get ourselves out of it. <laughs> You're a very optimistic man. <laughs> what should I say there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> About that. <laughs> but no, I, I love it. I love your optimism. And after all, that's what I do. I try to demystify mental health and addiction. And I try to be the bringer of hope. I try to be that that light in the darkness for others. That's why I bring guests like you on. So yes, I I, I actually second that. And it honors you. And it humbles me to, to actually think along the same lines so that's beautiful but of course for me it's important now uh here you are you have done this amazing this amazing book but that was 2018 you sort of wrapped it up 2019 wasn't it the, the writing and it got published what uh 2020 yeah, 2019 yeah, oh, yeah. I, I do Perfect. have a new book uh coming out yeah that in may just in a few months and uh it's uh, it's related to drugs a little bit, but it's about my mentee, my little brother and the big brother's big sister's mentoring organization who was murdered. Um, his name was Jarrell Cleveland. He lived in Ferguson, 
the city outside St. Louis that had the famous protests um, in 2014 and kind of kickstarted Black Lives Matter. Mm. And um, my mentee, we were together for 11 years when he was murdered in 2016. And um, it was a cold case. The police, you know, didn't know who did it. But um, I did an investigation and figured out who killed him. And the book is about sort of about Jarrell's story, my story. It's like a true crime sort of memoir about our relationship and everything that I was forced to learn, you know. He kept a lot of things from me and my own sort of naivete stopped me from knowing what was really happening in his life. And so that's what I learned in this book. It's good. It's called, it's called little brother love tragedy and my search for the truth. I uh, almost forgot to mention the title, but you can find more information on my website. It's just benwestoff.com. If you just Google Ben Westoff, you'll find it. Mm. When will it be released? In May. In May. Let yeah. me be on your publishing team. Um, flick me a copy. I'm so happy to review that, man. Um, oh, it is, great. Well, thank you. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Um, you're an amazing man. You're tenacious. You are, you're a bit like a bulldog. Once you have sort of got it on the bone, <laughs> you can't get that bone back out. And that is what it takes to do a proper investigation. And therefore, it is so amazing. It is. I couldn't stop reading your book. And I love that that depth i love that 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 holding on and seeing something through till the end and that is sometimes that's not so common that is that's not so common in our society um we are quick fakes quick things and then it gets forgotten and you're a man who sticks with a topic and sees it through until it comes to a conclusion a proper conclusion and that is that is lovely so i'm looking forward to your new book no doubt and you guys well, out there oh hell yes <laughs> and you guys down there uh look down there down there is all the information for ben so you just need to click and, and, and copy and paste into to your, your search bar and uh, go for it, guys. And the, once you're down there, you might as well press the subscribe button and the like button on the interview. And whilst you're there, you might think, well, that was actually a really cool interview. Why don't we, why don't I tell about my friend uh, to my friends about that? Because it's it's you know, let's spread the news, let's actually educate people, and that is what this particular interview is doing so well. By Ben's book. It is worthwhile, really worthwhile reading. Fentanyl Inc. You see it over his right shoulder up there. Uh, there it is. And guys, go out there, buy it. It's well, well, well worthwhile. Cool. Ben, I'm humbled and I'm honored to, to, have you had, to have had you on my show. You're an amazing man. Please keep going with this energy and with this tenacity. It is, uh, you are destined to come up with other ideas that this world needs to know about. So uh, I, I forbid you to stop, uh, forbid you to stop writing. Okay. You, you just need to keep going. Is that okay? <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Well, that's, a, I appreciate you saying it. It's, a, it's, a, it's a very humble to hear you say this. So thank you. No trouble at all. And you guys out there, look after yourself and live with passion and make this, make every second count. Look after yourself. Bye. All right. Take care. Dream on, dream on.